Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Glad you're with us, especially if you're visiting. We are continuing through 1 Timothy. This is towards the end of the Bible. If you're using one of the blue Bibles, we provide it. It's on page 991. This is Paul's first letter to Timothy. We will be reading starting in chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help. Father, we ask that as we hear from your word, that you would speak to us clearly, help us to understand what you are saying here. Uh, Teach us uh, through this small letter written so many thousands of years ago, help us to become the kind of church that honors you, glorifies you, and does what you've called us to for your glory and for the good of our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm sure some of you, like me, have experienced the way that churches tend to become pretty inward-focused, pretty ingrown. Churches and Christians can become so focused on themselves, uh, on their own programs and their own institutions, that they easily forget Jesus' last command that he gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, what we call the Great Commission. This is what he says to them at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And what that means and what you see in the rest of the New Testament through the book of Acts and through the letters uh, that are written to different churches and to different people, you see that until Jesus comes back uh, at the end of the world as we know it, his church and his people are supposed to be going out to talk about him, to baptize people into his kingdom, into his church, and to train them and teach them to obey him in every aspect of their lives, not just on Sunday mornings. But a lot of churches, instead of going out, have a tendency to just hunker down. Paul has written this little letter to help Timothy lead the church in the city of Ephesus. It looks like the church is facing a similar kind of tendency. It's taken a sharp turn inward uh, since Paul was there planting the church. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, longer than he spent with any other church or city. And here we are about ten years later. Uh, And the church now is really struggling. It's looking inward. It's scoffing as it looks outward. Uh, There are teachers. It's not clear if the teachers have come from outside or from inside, but there are teachers there who are now focused really uh, adamantly on who's in 
and who's out. They are speculating about the Bible. They're twisting it into some kind of mystical secret knowledge that's necessary for those who would ascend into an elite caste of super-Christians. They are really fixated on special rules, scrupulous obedience to extra things, uh, extra disciplines that God never gives to his people. And so here in chapter 2 now, Paul is continuing to help Timothy faithfully carry out God's mission for his church. And he's doing it here by reminding Timothy against these teachers that Jesus' church is meant to be outward focused, that its mission is to be oriented towards all people. In these seven verses, Paul is showing us that a church carrying out Jesus' mission for the world is a church that's going to be praying for all people because of God's desire for all people in light of Jesus' ransom of all people. Prayer for all people, desire for all people, and ransom of all people. We'll explain in a little bit what ransom means. But start by looking at verses 1 and 2 there in chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, you see Paul exhorting Christians and churches about praying for all people. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You notice how often he's using this language of all, all, every. He uses four words here for prayer uh, with a lot of overlap between them. Uh, supplications and requests, I mean, supplications and prayers mainly speak of making requests to God, which is really, I think, the heart of prayer, asking God for things, particularly the things that we know that he desires for us. Intercession means making a request to God. We're still talking about requests, but here now it's more about doing it on behalf of somebody else, asking God to bless them and help them and give them what they need. Thanksgiving, of course, means expressing gratitude to God. Prayer is, I think, mainly about making requests to God, but it's not only about requests. Uh, It also entails praising God. It entails confessing our sins to God. And here... Uh, speaking our gratitude to God. Uh, sometimes I've talked to kids about prayer, and I've said you can think of prayer as uh, saying, I love you, I'm sorry, thank you, and please help. Basically, the pieces of what the Christian prayer life is about. Paul says that churches and Christians should not be making requests and expressing gratitude only for themselves, although they should, but he says that he really wants them to be doing it for all people those outside the church. Uh, I'm sure we've all seen how easy it is. Uh, Think of our time that we have during our church service, during the prayers of the people time, uh, or even in our own prayer lives. It's so easy to just focus on our own needs and our own struggles and our own problems rather than asking and thanking God for other churches and other countries and people who don't believe in Jesus. I wonder how you're doing here. I was really challenged studying this passage, uh, thinking about not only that I'm supposed to be making requests for all kinds of people, uh, but that I'm even supposed to be thanking God for them, not just for the people in my own church. Prayer is really hard, of course. We live in a very distracted, uh, busy society. It's really easy to make excuses about why we can't pray, why we don't have time for it, uh, so that almost all of us are praying uh, much, much less than we should, myself included. But when we do pray, 
It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Are we just praying for ourselves? Are we just praying for our own families? Are we just praying for things like elbow surgeries and math tests? It's not wrong to pray for a good outcome for Aunt Susan's elbow surgery. It's not wrong to pray that you get a good grade on a test. I think God wants us to bring these kinds of things to him. I think we grow closer to him as we bring more and more of these kinds of things to him in prayer. But we need to remember that God doesn't make any specific promises to us about how an elbow surgery or a math test is going to turn out. But God does make all kinds of promises about how he can and he will make us more holy and more joyful and more generous, even and perhaps especially in suffering. And so are we asking God to make ourselves and other people more like Jesus, no matter how the surgery or the test turns out? It's, a, it's quite a shift in the way you think about praying and approaching God, praying about your circumstances. Paul says here that he wants us to be praying for all people. And as you'll see later on in the passage, the focus here is on God's desire to save all people. And so are we praying that God would send the good news of Jesus to the people around us, to other places in the world, even considering how God might want to use us to do that, to become the answer to our own prayers? Uh, If you're here and you are already a Christian, I would encourage you to think of at least a handful of specific people in your life who don't know the Lord or who are searching uh, and pray specifically for them. Pray uh, that God would help them and bless them. Thank God for them and what he's doing in their lives and what he's doing through them. Uh, Ask God to give you opportunities and courage to speak to them about who Jesus is, uh, about what this life is all about, about some of the things we talked about in Ecclesiastes, about death and how That gives us a certain seriousness to life and the need to deal with the hard things. In verse 2, Paul specifies that he particularly wants churches and Christians to be praying for those in power. I'll come back to this in a second. But it helps us to see that when Paul says, pray for all people, he says, I really want you to pray for all people. You can see there, because of how he qualifies it, that what he means is pray for all kinds of of people. He immediately narrows in on one category of people. This is important for understanding the rest of this passage that keeps talking about all people, all people, all people. Uh, We need to know that in the Bible and elsewhere, even just in our own language, the word all often means all without distinction. It does not always mean all without exception. Does that make sense? It often means all without distinction. It doesn't always mean all without exception. If I say the whole entire church came over for a potluck, you know that I almost certainly don't mean every single member and visitor that's ever been to our church came over to my house. But that what I mean is a lot of CTK people came over. Uh, You know that I don't mean the youth group came over uh, or I had a men's ministry, something or other, at my house. So when Paul says, pray for all people, he is obviously not saying, I want you to pray for every single person on the planet, because of course, that's not possible. Like every other word in every human language, the meaning of the word all depends on its context. You can see a good example of this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, which repeatedly, uh, emphatically uses the language of all or everything without literally meaning it. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 28, says that Jesus is, this is talking about Jesus preaching around uh, his home region of Galilee. It says that his fame spread everywhere. Verse 45 says that people came to him from everywhere, which of course is not referring to South America. 
Verse 37, Jesus' disciples tell him that all are looking for you, not referring to the Roman emperor, let alone every single person in the area. Verse 32 says that the people brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons, uh, which is clearly not referring to every single sick person in the empire. Uh, And you can see that even more because two verses later, Mark is describing the same exact event. Uh, He's just said it was everybody who was sick was there. All of them were there. And he says two verses later that Jesus healed many who were sick. He cast out many demons. And so you can see there that all often means all without distinction. It means all kinds, or it means a lot. It often does not mean all without exception. Hang on to that for a couple minutes. We'll come back to this. But look at verse 2 again. Paul says, pray for all people, and we can see that what he means is pray for all kinds of people. And especially, he says, pray for the kind of people that you're probably most tempted to disdain. People in political power. In Timothy's context of the first century, nearly all of the Roman political leaders were completely ignorant about uh, and often indifferent about Christianity. Uh, But more and more and more of them were becoming openly hostile to Christianity. Uh, People like the Emperor Nero, who is now the emperor, as Paul is writing this to Timothy, the emperor who's going to execute Paul in a few years. He was infamous for his persecution of Christians. Paul says, make sure you pray for them too, even the really bad ones, with requests and thanksgiving. Now, Paul tells us what we should be praying for when we pray for those in the government. He says, pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, of course, that's not the only thing that you can pray about for the government. It's not the only thing you should pray about for the government. But I think it's important to see how minimal it is, especially because we live in a world and in a society which, uh, in which the state affects and controls just about every aspect of our lives. And it's very hard for people to imagine it not doing that. I think this is why the vast majority of people in America obsess over who's in political power and over how my own tribe can secure more of it. So notice that Paul does not say, pray that they fix every problem and solve every crisis. Paul does not say, pray that they give you somebody else's money because you could really use it and you really want it. Paul does not say, pray that they impose Christian ethics on the rest of society. Paul says, pray for them so that they will operate in a way that lets us live in peace, free to obey and honor God. We said a few weeks ago in our series on Ecclesiastes that Romans 13 shows us that just like God has given a specific and limited role to parents and to elders in a church, uh, roles and limits which they must not overstep no matter how well-intentioned or powerful they might be, In the same way, also, God has given a specific and limited role to the state. Paul says in Romans 13 that their role from God is to terrify and violently punish the wicked so that everybody else can live in peace. Our church's confession, it's called the Westminster Confession. It was written in the 1640s, and it was modified in this section by Americans in the 18th century. 
It's very clear about this, especially in the American modification. One famous theologian said this is the only significant contribution that American Presbyterians have made to theology. Um, they wrote about this very clearly and very specifically in the context of centuries of churches being co-opted and or harassed by the state. And they are very, very clear that political authorities have no authority to hinder or to interfere with religious bodies or gatherings. They have no authority to tell them how they're supposed to meet or function. They have no authority to punish anybody because of what they believe about God or what they don't believe about God. And so Paul says, pray that political leaders govern according to God's standard of justice, not whatever they happen to say is justice. Pray that they govern according to the specific role he's given them. Why? So that they will leave us to live lives of quiet integrity. Simple lives of obedience to God in whatever vocations he's given us, Monday through Sunday. That does not mean hunkering down and hiding from the world. Regular, quote-unquote, regular, boring Christian lives of simplicity and holiness are actually an extremely important part of how God reaches the world and spreads his kingdom as the world, we hope, sees genuine Christians sincerely and openly living for Christ. You can see that Paul is here thinking of the church's mission towards outsiders because of what he says in verses 3 to 4. And here we move from the church's prayer for all now to God's desire for all. Look at verse 3. Paul says this, he's referring to peaceful, unharassed lives of obedience of, to God's callings in the world. Paul says this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so Paul says, God wants peace in society so that the church can carry out its mission of announcing Jesus and teaching about Jesus, so that people all over the world can find the knowledge of the truth, that he saves sinners from the judgment we deserve by giving us the eternal life that we don't deserve. Now, what do we do with this phrase about God desiring all people to be saved? Uh, we know very clearly from our own experience and we know very clearly from what the Bible says that not all people are actually saved in the end. Uh, the most clear places about this in the Bible are actually coming from Jesus' own lips. It speaks about hell more than anybody else put together. Uh, we know and we see that many people refuse to trust in Jesus. Many people never even hear about him at all. Does that mean that, uh, according to this verse in 1 Timothy 2, does that mean that God's will has somehow been thwarted? I don't think so. Uh, once again, I think we need to remember that the word all often means all without distinction, just like it did earlier in the passage. Uh, I think uh, what Paul is saying is that God desires all kinds of people to be saved. He wants his good news about Jesus to go all over the city and the world. There are no kinds or categories of people whom we should write off as being unreachable or irredeemable. Remember what Paul said about himself and his own murderous past. God desires that even murderers like the Apostle Paul find life in Jesus. But at the same time, there really is a real sense in which it is God's genuine desire for every person to find life and salvation in Jesus. Even if in his mysterious sovereignty over all things, he does not ultimately save everybody. 
God must decide to save us if anyone is going to be saved at all. Because there's no way, the Bible is quite clear, there's no way we can save ourselves. As Paul says in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, God predestines us, he foreknows us towards salvation even before he's created the whole universe. Because apart from Christ, he says in Ephesians chapter 2, apart from Christ, all people are not just weak in sin, they're not just sick in sin, he says they are dead in sin. He goes on in Ephesians 2 to say that even faith, even faith in Jesus is a gift from God. It's not the one tiny little piece that God leaves in our court. But at the same time, God really does love his creation. He really does love the world. God sent Jesus here to show us what he's like and to call, him, call us to himself. And so what that means is that even um, though we understand and we believe it's mysterious, but we understand that God ultimately must be the one to save us, it still means that we genuinely should and can invite anybody and everybody to believe in Jesus. We should invite anybody and everybody to find life and salvation and forgiveness in him, even though we don't know who's ultimately going to respond in God's uh, kindness and mercy and grace. God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so the gospel should be preached to all people. The church of Jesus exists for all people. It's not just for those who happen to be in it right now. The church must never be an exclusive club or clique. Paul helps us to see why and how we can know that God desires for all people to be saved by now describing Jesus' ransom for all. We move from God's desire for all now to Jesus' ransom for all. Look at verse 5. Paul says, For, explaining what he means, for, for there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul says, Of course God desires for all people to be saved because there's only one God. There's not a God for Christians and a God for Hindus and a God for Muslims. There's only one God who's created the world. There's only one God who's ruling over the world. All people all over the world, every single person you meet every single day was made to know this one God who has now revealed himself most clearly and most climactically in the Lord Jesus. And so even though he didn't have to do this, the one God has provided a way for us to come to him, a way for us to get back into the garden, so to speak. He's provided the one mediator. He's provided the human, Paul emphasizes, the human Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is the one who stands between us and God. He brings about reconciliation and forgiveness from God toward us sinful rebels who have turned our backs on him. The New Testament never, ever once says that we reconcile with God. It always says that God reconciles with us. And the way that he does it is through Jesus. He provides the mediator. You can see in verse 6 how it is that Jesus can mediate between humanity and God, how it is that he can bring us back to him. He gives himself as a ransom for all. 
Um, I, I gave you maybe what sounded like a very strange and obscure reading earlier from Leviticus chapter 25 because it helps us understand what this language of ransom means. Um, there in Leviticus, you're hearing about people uh, either buying themselves or more commonly other people buying them out of debt or out of slavery. Uh, and in the Israel context, you have something called the year of Jubilee every 50 years where God resets all the debts and says, well, you know, if you're going to pay it off, uh, make sure you calculate, prorate it based on how soon it is uh, because you shouldn't have to pay so much if, you know, the year of Jubilee is going to happen next year. Um, and so we need to understand that because this language of ransom is a financial term. It's a payment that you would make to buy somebody out of debt or out of slavery uh, in the Old Testament, this set of words can also be used to describe redeeming or buying property. Um, you can buy land um, if it's hopelessly stuck in debt. Um, and the Bible translates and transposes this financial economic language into the spiritual realm to help us to see the way in which we are slaves to sin, uh, the ways that we are slaves to death. Uh, we are overwhelmingly indebted to a holy God, and there's absolutely no way that we can pay our way out of it, no matter how religious or obedient or well-intentioned we are. We cannot pay the ransom. Only God can. This is why uh, the Old Testament idea of the year of Jubilee is so significant for understanding Jesus and what he's done. In Luke chapter 4, he preaches in uh, his hometown of Nazareth, and he reads uh, from Isaiah about the year of Jubilee finally arriving in its kind of final and greatest form. And Jesus rolls up the scroll and he says, It's happened. Uh, it's been fulfilled. Uh, Jesus is Jubilee. Jesus is the one who finally releases us from our greatest and worst debts. That's what it means when the Bible says that Jesus gives himself as a ransom. He gives himself as a payment to buy us out of debt. Paul says that Jesus is the ransom for all. Again, I don't think, you might disagree with me and that's okay, you can disagree. I don't think this means all without exception because Jesus and the Bible are clear that not everybody is forgiven, not everybody is saved. Jesus is the ransom for all kinds of people. There's no distinction to be made. What this means when we say that Jesus really is the ransom for our sins is that he really does save us. He really does save anybody who trusts in him. He really does buy them out of all of their spiritual debts before God. Jesus does not just make it possible for us to be saved. Jesus does not just put the ball in our courts so that we can decide if we want to go with it or not. Jesus does not ransom a hazy blob composed of all people, some of whom may or may not decide to go along with it. No, as we heard in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Jesus saves sinners. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus gives his life on the cross. He pays our debt to God. And as he does that, he actually really is paying off the full debt of all the sins of anybody who believes in him, including the sin of unbelief. He doesn't just leave us to decide whether or not we're going to believe and to do what we will with it. Another way to think of this is that the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they work together in everything. The Father chooses those whom the Son will ransom, and those whom the Father has chosen, those whom the Son has ransomed, are also all those to whom the Spirit has given new life. 
Sometimes we might think of this as, well, yeah, God kind of chooses some people, and eventually those people will be saved. But Jesus is kind of there saying, oh, shucks, I really tried to save everybody else. I just couldn't do it. No, they work together. Because Jesus has actually and irrevocably paid this debt for us, it means that we can have a deep and abiding confidence that he will save us all the way to the end. Because Jesus died for us, he's also now interceding for us. He's praying to the Father standing before him on our behalf as our mediator. He wasn't just our mediator on the cross. He remains our mediator in heaven. The only reason that our prayers and our songs and my sermon and our worship at the communion table, the only reason that any of that is ultimately acceptable to the Father is because Jesus makes it acceptable to the Father because we remain deeply marred by sin and corruption, even as Christians. Jesus ransoms us, and as Jesus ransoms us, he also then intercedes for us before the Father. This is the one God's good news about how the one mediator Jesus really and fully and finally saves and rescues anybody who trusts in him. God wants this good news to go out to all people. He wants it to go out to all kinds of people in our society and in our world. There's nobody that we should be writing off. Uh, They're too uh, politically toxic. Uh, They're too messed up. They have too bad of a background. God says, no, I want all kinds of people to be saved. God is saving all kinds of people. And so that's why we should be praying for all kinds of people, especially the civil authorities, so that churches and Christians might have the peace and the freedom to announce this good news and to live in light of it. And so the church of Jesus, and this church in particular, can never just be about itself. It can never just be about those who happen to already be here. We have to always be outwardly oriented. We have to always seek ways to faithfully and boldly bring the good news to the world around us. That's why Paul immediately then jumps in verse 7 to saying, I've been appointed as a preacher and an apostle. And he says, I'm not lying. God really has appointed me to do this. He says, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. I go out to them. I don't just sit around in here and wait for them to come to me. Our world is so horrifically divided right now. But it's only hope for racial and social and economic peace and harmony is Jesus. Not that Jesus says everything that there is to say or that the Bible says everything that there is to say about how to fix our economic problems or our social problems. It does not. But ultimately speaking, only Jesus can unite a world that is so filled with spite and bitterness. The world's own solutions currently being peddled to unite us will only divide us, turn us further against each other. Jesus' church, Jesus' kingdom is for all people. It's a very big gospel for a very big mission. Our church is part of something so, so much bigger than itself. That's why I love when we confess the Apostles' Creed together, remembering that we are just one tiny little corner of the vineyard. This mission, this big gospel, this task before us, it can be pretty intimidating, it can be pretty overwhelming. But if we're going to faithfully live out the callings that God's placed upon us, if we're going to bear witness to Him in what we say and do in whatever uh, parts of our jobs or our families or our lives where God places us, we need to remember that Jesus has ransomed us. We need to remember, 
each one of us, not only that he's ransomed us as a blob, but that he's ransomed me. He's ransomed me. Because when you believe that, and when you know that, that Jesus not only has ransomed us, but that he's ransomed me, you know that you are fully forgiven. You know that you are fully accepted. You know that you are fully loved. Not in the abstract, not in the hypothetical, not on the condition that I get my life together and I stop messing up so much, but really and truly and fully. If you put your confidence and your hope in Jesus, you can confidently know that God wants you to be saved, which means that he really has saved you and he really will save you. Because Jesus has already paid off all of your debt, not just in the past, even into the future. We need that kind of joy and peace and confidence if we are going to serve a faithful part of God's big plan for all people in the world. Let's pray. Father, give us this joy and this peace that comes with knowing that you really are saving us. You're not just giving us a bit of a boost or a bit of help for us to save ourselves, but that you do everything for us because there's no ultimate way we can do it for ourselves. It's purely by your grace and your goodness and your kindness. Help us to know that and believe that. Keep us from becoming uh, inward focused. Keep us from becoming tired, lazy, apathetic. Give us a deeper joy in your goodness and in your kindness to us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.